Our guests this morning are three uh, veterans of Vietnam, two graduates of West Point and one of Annapolis. Uh, this is a two-part program. Today is a recounting of their reflections, their experiences, and tomorrow, uh, early days, beginnings. Once upon a time, military men never questioned. Theirs was always to uh, do and die, never the reason why, really. But now young soldiers and officers, too, as well as enlisted men, are questioning, questioning many things, and specifically our Indo-Chinese adventure. We once said Vietnam, now we say Indo-China. What will it be next? Uh, seated around the microphone are three graduates, two of West Point and one of Annapolis. And what could be better? <laughs> Many young man dreams of that. And the members of the Concerned Academy graduates, this is, there are more than 200 graduates of West Point and Annapolis who are, have come out opposed to action in Vietnam, opposed to further Indochina war. You may recall that a couple months ago, Lieutenant Louis Font was our guest, and he spoke his piece, his thoughts, his observations. Dr. Gordon Livingston, West Point, graduate, Johns Hopkins Medical School, Vietnam. You're a veteran of Vietnam as a, uh, as a uh, cap, a major, as a major. Recently, uh, one of his letters appeared in the Saturday Review, a letter from a Vietnam veteran expressing the views. Uh, Robert Johnson, West Point, 65, company commander in Germany and in Vietnam. You were there during the Tet Offensive. No, I wouldn't. No, uh, no. Rob Black was. Rob I arrived Black. just after the Tet Offensive. And Robert Black, Rob Black, Annapolis graduate, Marine captain. Yes, so where do we begin? How uh, you were uh, the veteran of the Battle of Hue. That's correct. Yeah. Well, if you want to start there, Captain Black. Well, uh, Battle of Hue, I think, marked uh, what the administration tried to call a high water mark in the terms of uh, communist offensive, and uh, we could start with that and look at what. Uh, the American government is trying to do in terms of uh, propaganda and speaking to its own people to tell the country what is happening in Vietnam. Uh, they're saying one thing, and we've seen another. Uh, we've found out, I think, that our administration and the, uh, the Defense Department in particular is not portraying the true facts of what's happening in Vietnam, that uh, possibly we were over there to fulfill commitments which aren't being fulfilled. And they're trying to present to American people that uh, they have to have a victory uh, in order to be successful in Vietnam. And we have seen what uh, they purport is happening, and we know that's not, tr that's not true. Uh, we also feel that uh, if you try and go on this attitude of having to have a victory, you're not going to do anything in Vietnam but destroy it. Well, does this just no, just to identify voices? Uh, Commander Johnson, Bob Johnson. Well, I think all of us share a very similar experience because we all at one time were career officers. And what I went to Vietnam, uh, a big hawk, and what I saw there in, on the ground is what changed my mind. I, I found out what pacification means. I found out uh, what it means to save the Vietnamese. And it, it was a turning point, and it took a lot of uh, getting my own head together because I had, uh, I was such a strong hawk and I tried to investigate the war to, to find out well, what's really the trouble and I read all the basic documents on the war and uh, the more I read is, is the case with so many Americans the, the more they find out that uh, uh, our policy uh, rests upon sand now uh, I think uh, Dr. Livingston probably uh, shared a, a more graphic experience that he could relate Well, I think uh, I think all of us uh, feel essentially the same way about the war now, and I think if we had to boil down our position to a uh, simple proposition, it would be that uh, uh, we regard uh, what we from on the basis of what we have seen in Vietnam, we we can see no good uh, emerging for Vietnam or for the United States from what we are doing now, and we feel that uh, our involvement therefore should be terminated as uh, as promptly as possible. We don't think that is being done now, and uh, and that's why we are speaking out. I think, you know, 
what would be revealing to the audience and your own revelations, really. You know, Bob Johnson was saying he went there as a hawk. That is unquestioning. Obviously, we're right in being immorally right. What is it? Perhaps it's a recounting, I think. This is what really counts, doesn't it? Recounting of specific experiences, observations, and how it was that you think differently. Uh, Rob Black. Well, you know, take my own individual background. Uh, my father was a career Marine officer. He was also an Academy graduate. I was brought up uh, very strongly within the Episcopal Church. Uh, I was brought up uh, to respect authority and to defer to the representative government and, uh, things, of, and things along this line. And I think that uh, what, I, what has happened over the time, I, I accepted that. I accepted it, and I really believed in uh, the American system. I still believe in the American system. But I found that you cannot uh, be silent because of my experiences over there especially because of what's happened over there. Uh, to, to, to go from a situation where you are required to accept without thinking the fact that you have to kill somebody, uh, it's a little hard to take when you have to confront it. Some people never have this uh, confronting them. But if you really get down to the meat of the matter, uh, as a captain in the Marines, I was a rifle company commander. Uh, I was a headquarters commandant for a rifle battalion. And in these positions, I was being paid um, by the time I got out, close to $9,000 for the purposes of killing people. And it's, it's uh, as basic as humanity itself. Yeah, but Rob, see, uh, this is the part. You came from a family, a military family, uh, no doubt, uh, decorated, you know. Uh, where was it? Perhaps we could talk about the asking. Well, we'll come to that. Let's make it in sequences. When it was that, that uh, Bob Johnson? Well, when it happened to me, I think with me it was a process as it is with everyone and I when I got to Vietnam and was an advisor of a South Vietnamese infantry battalion and, and and saw the way for example that we treated prisoners and the way the American advisors uh, my superiors uh, viewed the treatment of prisoners could, could and perhaps even expand on that word we heard so often in the past advisor what that means well an advisor in my judgment is, is nothing more than a, a fire support coordinator for Vietnamese units uh, it's very difficult for an American who has very little understanding of the Vietnamese culture, which dates back 3,000 years, to advise those people about anything. I mean, uh, they were people that sent poets and scholars abroad as foreign ambassadors in the 15th century. And to think that just a few years of mil uh, with just a few years of military training, we can go there and, and, and even suppose to give them any kind of meaningful advice about their society is, is ludicrous. What, what were your experiences, Gordon, on that? I think everyone has a certain tolerance for inconsistency. Uh, mine was reached after uh, I got to Vietnam, uh, having gone there, uh, believing uh, generally in the national rationales that we had propounded, that of uh, ensuring uh, self-determination and, uh, and uh, preventing a, a communist takeover but above all acting in the best interests of the Vietnamese people and I felt that there I would be able to do something constructive uh, uh, medically and participate in, in, a, in a, uh, a cause uh, which I could support. When I got on the ground and saw what was actually happening between Americans and Vietnamese, it became apparent that uh, the Vietnamese were being treated by Americans at all levels with nearly universal contempt, uh, beginning with the, the way they were uh, generally referred to as gooks or slopes or dinks. They were forced off the road by our trucks. They were run down indiscriminately by our helicopters. There was uh, uh, a very vast number of indiscriminate casualties uh, caused by uh, our artillery fire uh, into uh, populated areas. I was in the position of having to treat uh, wounded North Vietnamese prisoners while they were being questioned and having to barter, uh, essentially barter for their lives with the intelligence officers who always wanted to ask a few more questions. Um, and then uh, my exposure in, in a large evacuation hospital emergency room watching those those young Americans come off those helicopters with missing limbs and blinded and and being forced to the question of what could justify this and I could find no answer to that question and that's why I'm here today we just, uh, it's for you to talk and me to listen and listeners to listen anything uh, Rob to, on the same subject, you were asking uh, where my turning came in this. Uh, as I said, I went over there really feeling I was doing something, and I got involved in a, 
area south of Da Nang, which uh, was primarily a Viet Cong area. In other words, real guerrilla warfare was going on. And I was trying to identify with the people. And no sooner than I got there, I noticed that outside of our base camp, a little village that was there was all of a sudden blown away by uh, a thing called a, uh, a line charge from a marine amphibian tractor. They'd throw this line charge out, and 2,000 pounds of Composition 4 explosive would go off. And after one or two of these, the village was no more. Now, granted, they didn't do it while the people were in there. The people were supposedly resettled. Uh, a term that is often confused, because resettling means you're, they're taking them off the land they own and shoving them off into another area. So they it in the Hamlet. Uh, no, the Strategic Hamlet program yeah, was one facet of that. This was this had nothing to do with Strategic Hamlet program, but it it is the same aspect mm -hmm. of the farce of resettlement. Mm -hmm. And uh, so their village, their homes, their temples uh, were all destroyed in the name of keeping the road from being mined by the VC that came through that little village uh, near our uh, battalion command post. I don't think it was necessarily the uh, one lieutenant colonel's uh, battalion commander's uh, policy that that happened. I think it became a series of events, but which is quite uh, ex uh, exemplary of the uh, endemic um, destructive methods that we're trying to use to create political stability. And that's where it started, I think. I think it really started there, but I didn't really question it at that point. I just said, my God, what's happening? And that was it. And I went about my business as usual. Uh, the next time it happened was up at Quang Tree. Uh, we had a, a village that was definitely identified as a Viet Cong village in their control. It was a rice exchange point. It was an R&R &R center for the VC. And we did a very uh, intricate cordon and search operation with Vietnamese forces. The Marines blocked the circle it off, and then the Vietnamese went in, and they searched out their own kind to get the VC out. And they arrested some 150 males. Uh, some probably were just taken in, detained, and then left. Others were probably held because they were really suspect. Uh, not questioning the worth of the operation, but anyhow, that's how we got into this village. And we started an operation to provide security in the village. Two months later, uh, it was just about Tet, 1968. Uh, the Marines moved out. Uh, an Army unit moved in. Uh, Tet hit, uh, and a v NVA unit uh, so I have been told, was supposedly moving through this village. And that was the excuse used by this particular army unit to level the village. And it was leveled with its inhabitants in it. I mean, it was, it was a situation where it was just uh, going in with forces, uh, armed helicopter, gunships, things of this nature, and blowing the village out. And that, I, I didn't hear about that until I was in the middle of Battle of Hue. But I was starting to have real second thoughts there because I was looking at the big picture. We're supposed to be helping these people. And all I could see was we were creating refugees. We were blowing down their homes. Uh, the, the farce of resettlement became uh, creating new ghettos in other areas. The Vietnamese have their ghettos just like we have ours, and we've created most of those. Uh, and that's where the real questioning came. At that point, my unit was taken out of real guerrilla warfare, and I went to participate in the Operation Pegasus to... Uh, reopen the road to Quezon and to close the base as an operating base. And that got back into the kind of war I was in at Con Tien, which is a set-piece battle along Korean War or World War II lines, where there are no civilians in the area, and you've got two professional armies slugging it out, which is a real farce, because terrain is not the key in this war. A lot of people think it is. Uh, uh, what the real key in this war is is trying to p provide uh, political viability, political stability, uh, things along these lines, and you just can't do that with a gun. And uh, you know, I started to realize this, and I figured, man, it's time for me to look at the entire military picture. And there are a lot of other things that go into a decision than just what's happening in Vietnam, and I'm sure these gentlemen also have a good idea of things along these lines. Rap Black is talking, and Bob Johnson about Tom thinking the various, you know, the deception that's practiced to all of us, even the names, Operation Pegasus, a winged horse, Operation Sunflower, or whatever it's called, or that, too, is, is an air of unreality. Well, I think that's quite true. That one of the key examples to this is pacification, which doesn't pacify anybody. It just alienates people, a half a million Americans in a small peasant nation uh, with guns. That doesn't make many friends. But a, a good point on this, on, on this deception, has confronted us recently in President Nixon's uh, ceasefire proposal, which I personally judge uh, to be based primarily on political uh, maneuverings, uh, because if he were deadly serious about it, he would have done it in secret. And also, he, has, he, he told the American people he's now negotiating from strength, 
Well, we as military men look at the situation in Cambodia since his uh, non-invasion of that country. Uh, more than half the country's communists. All lines of communication uh, are severed in Cambodia. And Phnom Penh, the capital, is surrounded. So here again, I think we've, we've been deceived. And Vietnam, I think that's really the essence of how we all came to our realization. Uh, we had been deceived through a number of catchwords and phrases about what's really happening in Vietnam and what we're, what we're confronted with a people's war. What we've really done there is made war on the people. It's so funny, by the way, as, as uh, Dr. Livingston is about to talk, uh, that we said a non-invasion of camp, but the word used now officially is incursion. Now, incursion dictionary means burglary, you know. Incursion <laughs> is the word that's yeah, used. So, that's so it's no yeah. longer deception anymore. I think also one of our special points is that is that we are are trying to bring our story uh, in in a way that uh, will enable people who uh, are having obviously increasing doubts about uh, the Vietnam involvement will enable us to in some sense persuade them or motivate them to action. We're we are coming uh, not as radicals uh, uh, and and not uh, uh, with revolution on our minds, but with uh, an attempt to make uh, a system, I think, which we all believe in, uh, work, and, and asking for a return uh, to the more uh, fundamental ideals upon which the, uh, the country was founded. And I think that, that uh, this is in the best tradition uh, of American descent, and uh, so that we are speaking uh, not just for the people of uh, Vietnam, I think with uh, all of whom we we share uh, a great uh, uh, sympathy uh, because of what they've gone through, but but also uh, in a larger sense for the uh, the soul of this nation, which we feel is being uh, uh, distorted and uh, is in danger of being lost uh, over an issue of no fundamental strategic uh, importance to this country. And I think that if one regards the uh, le the increasing level uh, and acceptance uh, of a violent ethic uh, in this society, um, one has to conclude that the emphasis of the the administration is all wrong. It's not that when the vice president comes out in favor of law and order that 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 we object to that. What we object to is is the emphasis on a very small and relatively powerless group of uh, campus demonstrators as if they represented some fundamental threat to this society at a time when 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 this country is is participating in an institutional slaughter of some 3,000 people a week in Vietnam. The, the young people of this country see this position as being morally absurd and their response to it has been a dropping out of the society in an unprecedented fashion uh, 40,000 of our young men are now in Canada to avoid the draft. We're in the midst of a, a drug epidemic of alarming proportions. Uh, increasing numbers of young people are giving up on the system, and we don't. We think the war is in large measure responsible for this loss of, of moral standing in the society, and that uh, any attempt to um, uh, any attempt to approach some of the other problems has to await an end to the war. Such things as poverty and racism and and uh, environmental uh, uh, difficulties are all uh, major problems that are obviously going to take a long time to work out. The Vietnam War would not take a long time to work out. We can end that promptly uh, and in very short order, and that's the reason that it is at the top of our list of priorities. Well, while I thought of it, uh, Rob brought something up earlier today uh, about this deception thing, and which I think is very important. President uh, Nixon uses uh, as his philosophical base the writings of a particular so-called guerrilla expert called Sir Robert Thompson, who operated in the Malaysian counterinsurgency. And he even mentioned this man in one of his national addresses. And, but he didn't mention the title of the book that uh, Sir Robert Thompson wrote, I don't think. And the title of the book is No Exit from Vietnam. And so those people who, who, who always give this answer, well, I, I'm against the war too, but after all, isn't the president trying to get us out? Isn't he really disengaging us? And my answer is no. This Vietnamization program is, is a fraud. It's never worked. Never worked for the French. The French found very quickly they had to, to, to de-Europeanize it, de-French it. They couldn't Vietnam Vietnamize it. Neither can we. And uh, I think what we want to do is get this message across to the American people. The war is not ending. The only way we can end it is accept the reality, and that is we have no business meddling in what is essentially an internal conflict in Vietnam. Rob Black, do you want to say something? What do you think? I 
thought you had a comment. Yeah, I did. I was just going to. Sure. I was going to ask, of course, about yourselves and whether you feel. You know, I realize there, there are 200 graduates. You represent 200 graduates of West Point, Annapolis. Do you sense, you know, a growing feeling such as you have among other office enlisted men? Before that, though, Bob Johnson was implying that Dr. Livingston had experiences to recount. You know, uh, perhaps yourself. Were you an interrogating officer? No, no, no. I, I was. I, I was a medical officer. Um, and uh, with a responsibility, uh, with several responsibilities, uh, to provide uh, uh, so, some medical care to our, uh, our own troops, uh, to provide uh, medical civic action uh, programs for the Vietnamese, and, and, uh, and incidentally to uh, treat uh, wounded uh, North Vietnamese and Viet Cong uh, troops who were brought to, to, uh, uh, to our headquarters. And uh, in all these roles, I, I felt I, I got a fairly uh, broad view of the situation. And uh, I mean, the experiences one could recount uh, about that war are, uh, are endless. And I'll, I'll give you one of them, I think, that had a very profound effect on me uh, and, and, and my view of that war. And it was Christmas Eve, 1968. And we were sitting down to supper at uh, the Seventh Surgical Hospital and the helicopters started coming in and their cargo was children and in in the space of 20 minutes we accepted 34 children who had been burned uh, with the white phosphorus and as one of the helicopters came in one of the pilots said over the radio Jesus they're glowing in the dark and these children were all badly burned with the white phosphorus which was continuing to burn as they were brought in uh, to this emergency room two and three on a stretcher some of them as young as eight or ten months old and as we were trying to uh, stop the uh, white phosphorus from burning by applying the, uh, the appropriate uh, uh, chemical, uh, they, they just lay there uh, stoically, uh, some of them uh, blinded, uh, all of them with the scars that they'll carry for the rest of their life. And it was literally all I could do to, to stay in that emergency room because I saw my own children in equivalent circumstances. Now the grenade uh, that uh, uh, injured them that night was the result of an accidental explosion of an American grenade. And like so much of the misery, uh, intentional and incidental, uh, uh, that has come to Vietnam, that grenade was made in the United States of America. Uh, Dr. speak of the use of anti-personnel bombs anti-personnel bombs, those which uh, injure people but not property. That, have you had? Well, I think all of us have seen the results of, uh, of fragmentation of uh, anti-personnel bombs. Obviously, our, our target in Vietnam is uh, largely personnel. I think uh, um, a lot has been made of the fact that these were used in North Vietnam also, where our targets were allegedly not people. But uh, I think it's clear that these have been used. But my quarrel is not with the individual weapons of war, uh, which are uniformly horrible and, uh, and all of which can kill and maim. I think, uh, I think what, what, we're, what we're saying is that uh, the, the military is a blunt instrument indeed, uh, as it has been employed in Vietnam, and we should stop. Rob Black, uh, you were intelligence officer. Yes, uh, before I got into way, I was the battalion intelligence officer, and Gordon had mentioned something about, uh, you know, having to deal with the intelligence officer, and uh, it's uh, a very difficult thing to have played that role, and some cases I'm always reminded of the fact that I had to work with the Vietnamese. I cannot say that I, I saw physical torture in terms of uh, an American Marine or a Vietnamese individual working with the Marines physically torturing an individual. It wasn't because I had my eyes closed. I mean, I know it happened. There's no question of that. Uh, it's just that I didn't physically see it. I saw the results of it, though. Uh, armed propaganda team. I guess uh, this could be called uh, agitprop in some some respects. It's actually uh, something that's been copied from, uh, uh, in some respects, from uh, what the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong have been doing. But this particular team would work with uh, an intelligence gathering unit, uh, scouts or something like, going with a Marine rifle company. The company commander would go through the area, and then they'd, they'd collect whatever Vietnamese were there and turn them over to these people. And what would go on, which basically we sanctioned because we permitted it to go on, the fact that this man would, uh, the armed propaganda team leader, would extract information from women, from uh, you know young people, 
as well as from, you know, men. Uh, he would extract information through physical beatings, and you'd see an old woman walk in to wherever he was doing his interrogations, and then she'd walk out all black and blue, her face smashed, probably lost a few teeth or something, and uh, I don't see where, you know, things of this nature are going to uh, get any type of credibility for a government. You know, you're, pro you're providing security for these people. Well, I don't see where busting their teeth, you know, leaving them physically maimed is going to do anything but turn them off to what their government is supposedly doing for them. And we have really sanctioned this type of thing. Uh, as far as, as what goes on in hospitals, on one occasion I escorted a captured uh, uh, North Vietnamese uh, lieutenant uh, from our area. He, he was hit by harassment interdiction fires one evening. We found him the next morning seriously wounded. Well, not the next morning. I think he'd been lying there for a week because of the seriousness of a staphylococcus infection that, they, that he had. And he was taken to the hospital, flown directly to the hospital, and I escorted him. And uh, as soon as I got up there, the interrogators were there. And as Dr. Livingston said, these people, boy, they, they, they want to take priority over the man's medical needs. And fortunately, I intervened and said, look, you, uh, you're just going to have to wait a second. Let the doctors get through. The guy's going to be here. He's not going anyplace. They'll give you a chance to get to him. Uh, he's been suffering for a week. Let's take care of it. And only because of the efforts of one or two people who understand this do a few not suffer all of the, the degradations and inhumanities of war to the fullest extent. And the intelligence business, I'm sure, is a necessary business within uh, defense and within military. But uh, the inhumane manner in which uh, we have sanctioned and, in some cases, carried out our so-called information gathering uh, is not to be condoned at all. Our three guests this morning, the first part of what we just heard, are former Marine uh, commander, uh, Rick, no, Rob, Rob Rich, sorry, Rob Rich, Dr. Gordon Livingston, a West Point graduate. Uh, Commander Rich was an Annapolis graduate. Uh, Dr. Gordon Livingston, who was a psychiatrist in the Army in Vietnam, and uh, former Captain uh, Bob Johnson, also West Point graduate, recounting their thoughts, experiences in Vietnam. Continue the conversation with our three guests. Mister, uh, Mister, I suppose, call me Mister. Was the musical following World War II? Mr. Rich, Dr. Livingston, Mr. Johnson. Bob, you want to talk? Bob Johnson. Well, I think we ought to address ourselves to the to the issue of what are called war crimes uh, in Vietnam, since uh, now a number of Americans are being put on trial for war crimes. And from my experiences in Vietnam, these kinds of, kinds of things go on throughout the country as a logical consequence of our policies there in Vietnam. For example, the free fire zone leads to the concept of shoot anything that moves, which leads to My Lai 4. Uh, he just talked about the intelligence gathering net, uh, elaborate methods of torture are used to gather information. But uh, at the same time, our administration focuses on the way the enemy treats our prisoners, and we forget about how we... Yeah, how, how we treat there is just so important. I know for one that while I was at West Point, I, I received no meaningful instruction whatsoever on what the rules of land warfare were and what uh, the Nuremberg principles were. And I think the reason for it's obvious uh, because I would have had a deeper understanding of just what Vietnam was about. Search and destroy as a policy in accordance with international laws is a criminal policy. The free fire zone uh, concept is the same way. In Vietnam, we have forcibly dislocated more than one-third of the rural civilian population. That's against the rules of land warfare, all of which I found out while I was in Vietnam and, and uh, after I got back. And now we see a situation, it's kind of an ironic, it's a tragic footnote, that our government, uh, the press finds out about some, uh, uh, the My Lai atrocity and a few others, and, and the army blames these GIs, who, in my judgment, are just doing what uh, what, what the commanders want them to do. You pile up the body count. Uh, you help make my career. Uh, and, and I think the American people know this, and, and I think they, they have a, an understanding of what's really happening and who's scapegoating whom. And I think we should, we should look elsewhere and shouldn't look to young GIs who are going there trying to do their duty within an, within an awful framework. Uh, we should look elsewhere. I think the question 
constantly arises. Well, then, if these things are true, then then how have we done this? Uh, why why do our leaders uh, keep assuring us that that uh, as President Nixon uh, once stated that uh, Vietnam will be looked at in history as our one of our finest hours? I think the I think the answer to that uh, is somewhat complicated, but but uh, can be boiled down to. Uh, um, what, it, what has been called by one author uh, uh, wishful thinking uh, filtered, uh, or rather misinformation filtered through uh, wishful thinking. I think that explains a great, great deal if one considers, for example, that the primary information which goes back uh, and on which uh, decisions are based um, comes through the military. Now, there is, a, there is an American myth that uh, no one hates war uh, worse than the soldier, which I think is, is widely held. I, I think this is indisputably true if one is talking about a specialist fourth class or a PFC uh, uh, walking through the jungle. Uh, they do indeed uh, hate the war. But if one is a career officer, uh, Vietnam is the road to success. And uh, during uh, my tour there, uh, it became evident uh, that that um, individual officers uh, were uh, profiting uh, tremendously by their participation in this war in terms of medals and promotions. and. Uh, the it be it for example uh, it's reached such a state that uh, that each officer over there has to get six months uh, command time while he is there which ensures a constant rotation of uh, inexperienced officers in in leadership positions but also uh, I think uh, what 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 is more important uh, fosters uh, um, the view of the senior military uh, of Vietnam as being a magnificent training ground for the future and uh, the result of all this is that the kind of information that gets passed up to the decision-making uh, portions of the government tends to be distorted by this uh, uh, largely uh, uh, self-serving view. And then, of course, there is also the aspect of wishful thinking. Americans don't like to believe that our country has acted in a dishonorable and, and, uh, and harmful way uh, toward a small nation so that uh, uh, people uh, such as the president are, are very selective about the kinds of information um, that they are, are prepared to accept. And, uh, and I think this, and Americans in general share that, and I think the reaction to the My Lai disclosures is am ample evidence of that, where large numbers of people will still insist that, there, um, uh, may w that the whole atrocity business may have been all trumped up or a creation of the media or something like that in the face of an admission by the, the Peers Commission um, that, uh, uh, that indeed a tragedy of major proportions took place in the, in the uh, face of the president's admission, in the face of the pictures on Life magazine, so, so that it's very hard for people to accept what we have done in Vietnam. But unless we do, and unless we, we uh, act uh, to uh, rectify uh, in some measure uh, this error and avoid similar ones in the future, then, then we will indeed uh, be condemned uh, to a, a repetition. A matter, of, uh, a matter of generals and officers, you say, who suffer as much as the foot soldiers indeed who do well. I understand you were a messmate of a celebrated general who was a celebrated son of a celebrated general of World War II. That's right. My commanding officer in Vietnam, uh, on whose staff I served, was Colonel George S. Patton III. And uh, he, in many ways, epitomized the same philosophy of life uh, that uh, uh, his father did, and I, I think I stand with those who feel that his father rendered uh, uh, a good and necessary service to this country. But I also believe firmly that that uh, the then Colonel Patton, with whom I served, uh, did not perform an equivalent service, although he he manifested the same kind of love of warfare, uh, 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 belief in uh, in the body count, uh, and in. Uh, uh, I think in the context of Vietnam and essentially political situation that this is the kind of attitude um, uh, that, that has, uh, has led us to disaster. And uh, he, for example, um, uh, uh, profited uh, personally uh, in very direct ways uh, uh, by his participation in Vietnam. He walked away with all the appropriate medals and uh, I think the key thing for anyone evaluating or who would, who would choose, choose a man like Colonel Patton who would say things, for example, that uh, such as he loved to see the arms and legs fly and uh, who sent out the famous Christmas card with dismembered uh, uh, North Vietnamese bodies, a photograph thereof uh, over the legend Peace on Earth, uh, Colonel and Mrs. George S. Patton III. Uh, a man who would do this, uh, if 
people would like to believe he is a, a an exception or an aberration within the military, I think one only need uh, confront the fact that uh, since his return from Vietnam, uh, uh, Colonel Patton has been promoted to Brigadier General. Virtue is its own reward. Uh, I'm going to ask Rob Black a question. I ask about colleagues. And since Patton, father and son, have come into the, you came from a military family. What are the thoughts of your family considering your position there? Well, it's my my uh, I realize it's personal, but I think it's it can be ex uh, discussed. Uh, my parents were, I think, opposed to my resigning. Uh, they know. Uh, although they don't say, they know that I resigned over Vietnam. Uh, I think that my mother tried to displace the real reason why I got out to the fact that I was marrying this young lady to whom I'm married now. Uh, that's the way it first manifested itself. Then once they accepted the fact I was doing what I wanted to do, they were quite, you know, reconciled to the fact I was getting out. Uh, when my name appeared in print uh, as being a member of Concerned Academy graduate and it appeared in the local paper, uh, they were quite uh, unready for that, and they couldn't accept the fact that I would speak out against the government. Uh, I still don't think they accept the fact. I think they dismiss it. The way I heard about it was from my brother, who happened to be home at the time that that happened. Uh, the feelings uh, when we see each other face to face is still one of mutual respect and love. But uh, beyond that, uh, there is, I think, uh, a basic disagreement as to what those feelings are. As far as, uh, you know, what's happening, you know, feelings in general, it's, it's difficult for, it, it's difficult for, uh, well, I've lost my train of thought. I think I better pass it on no, to someone else. No, that's okay. I was asking about, do you represent, what impulse do you feel you represent among officers, enlisted men? Drawing, you know, a minority or you're quite articulate and you've seen it, you've been there, and no one can question your credentials, by the way. This is, I think, rather interesting. Do you feel the dissent growing, the questioning growing among those in forces? I certainly do, and I think that most, a great many men in the Army have come to the realization that, uh, or, or low-ranking members of the Army have come to the realization that Vietnam's a tragic mistake and we must end it, and the question is, is really how and how they can apply this to their personal, uh, personal lives. I, I really can't make a, a judgment as to how, how many people feel exactly the way we do. But there are uh, growing numbers. In Vietnam, uh, there was an article, I think, in Life magazine about uh, a company commander who had to put certain kind of orders to a vote with his men in Vietnam. Uh, there was a film on television about a company called Charlie Company and had an interview with a, a mortarman in that company. And he said he just wasn't going to fire his tube. He said he was part of the Woodstock generation and he wasn't going to do it. And peace signs are everywhere in Vietnam. And <laughs> often the administration... Yeah. Often, uh, blacks as he carried one of those jackets. Uh, I, I've also lost my train. I, I think uh, I'll pass it on to you. I, I think the important thing and the message that we're trying to bring is that you, is that in a sense, uh, the whole society, um, are, are Vietnam veterans. Uh, uh, you don't have to have gone to Vietnam uh, to draw the, the kinds of conclusions that, that, uh, um, that we have. Uh, all of us have been exposed, uh, well, perhaps overexposed is the word, to the, to the daily uh, violence uh, until it's and, and, and dehumanizing statistics until in a way it's become a part of our lives, a part of our culture, um, so that we can watch, uh, watch scenes of combat uh, and eat our supper at the same time and they kind of merge with with the, the rest of the violence uh, on the media and uh, achieve the same uh, aura of unreality. And I think that uh, what, what, what all that we're saying is that on the basis of our experience, these things are real, and that if one will stop for a moment and look around his society, I think the, uh, the effects of the war are evident to everyone, and that now uh, is, is the time for action. If I could add just one thing about the way Vietnam veterans feel. There's one issue, whether no matter what the political view of the Vietnam veterans, uh, that I think they'll agree on, and that's the issue of war crimes. Those Vietnam veterans that have seen some combat, because everyone has either seen one, a minor one, or at least has heard the rumors in Vietnam. And I think we're all in agreement that, <laughs> that uh, what's happening in the Cali trials is wrong, and that for whatever reasons we think that these men are being scapegoated. So there's a lot of different kinds of understandings on the parts of veterans. Along the lines of scapegoating, uh, the, it's, a, it's a problem within the military itself. 
uh, I call it the problem of mediocrity. Uh, I don't think that Lieutenant Calley would have been in the position he is in now had Captain Medina had uh, more direct control of what was going on or had uh, tempered his commanding officer's words in many ways. Uh, I found that, uh, as I was telling some other people, that I got very little sleep in Vietnam because I was extremely concerned with what I was doing and I was really trying to help people over there. I wasn't trying to kill people. I got decorated. Uh, just because I got decorated doesn't mean that I really was killing people. At that point, I was trying to keep my own self alive. I was in a very desperate situation. Uh, as far as, as this business on mediocrity goes, it, there are a large number of officers, uh, staff non-commissioned officers, who are in the service today uh, basically because of a certain amount of security. Regardless of whether you're at war or peace, you're going to have a certain amount of money coming in. You're going to be able to live. There are all kinds of benefits to service life. You can take a slightly lower salary job and live at a, th at a probably a higher standard of living than if you attempted to get into the job market on the outside. Uh, I th have two very vivid examples of this. Uh, when I was in the battalion I was with south of Da Nang, the executive officer of that battalion, who was a major, senior to me by many years, a Korean vet, uh, he was a total incompetent. Now, he's supposed to be the second in command. He's supposed to coordinate all the staff action, make sure that operations uh, officer works well with the logistics officer, that the personnel situation is going well, uh, civic action isn't uh, being directed in the wrong ways. Well, th the only thing that I remember that this officer ever did was that he uh, drank a little too much, and any time he was needed, he was in a card game. And then uh, when the battalion commander would take his, his uh, forward staff, and take some companies and go out on an operation distant from the base that we were at, uh, he tried to play the uh, power. You know, he, he tried to satisfy his ego by uh, saying, all right, now we want to do this, that, and the other, and greatly interfered in what was the normal security operations. I happened to be the headquarters commandant. And I found, I found that I was put in the position of having to tell this major what to do, when to do it, and how to do it and having to countermand these orders many times. And it, I found that uh, I initially I hesitated to do this because that's a serious breach of discipline in many respects. But then I found a way around it, and I found that I could do it. And so I started doing it without any hesitancy. Uh, to give you an example, this officer was later relieved of his job. He was sent to another area, and uh, shortly thereafter he was court-martialed for uh, grand larceny because of the type of uh, his individual character. Well, I thought that was unique, but then when I got into another battalion within the same regiment, uh, barely, th barely four months later, we got another major, a relatively senior major. He became the exec. He was another incompetent. He was so meddling within the normal functioning of a battalion that they tried to find ways to keep his hands tied, and uh, they succeeded at some point. When, I, when the battalion commander was shot down, uh, around Quezon. He was in a helicopter. He was seriously wounded, and the operations officer was killed. Uh, the exec was supposed to come up and take over the battalion, and the regimental commander said, my God, no, stop. The war has ceased for you guys for a couple of days. Take up defensive position until we can get a new lieutenant colonel in here. And this is a problem which I found through other example, through other incidences, that happens on a on a very large, a larger scale than is normally believed. It's not like it's only two percent or ten percent. Uh, I think it pervades a good half of the officers over there for many reasons. Well, I'm, of course, I, I was in the army, and my experiences were somewhat different in that line. I, I found a, some incompetence, and I, but I found a great deal of competence and a great deal of zeal for enforcing our policies. I, saw some uh, spectacularly good uh, battalion commanders who were really capable of translating our policies in, in, into uh, their own career-fulfilling uh, uh, actions. So I, I don't hold the general view that there's a great deal of incompetence. I think in, in one sense there's perhaps there's just too much competence, too much plain functioning without asking to what end, for what purpose. But Gordon mentioned something earlier that I think is really worth talking about, and that's this wishful thinking, and that leads to the area of myths. There are a number of myths that surround Vietnam, and one is the, that many people always bring up is the bloodbath myth. What will happen if we fall off a cliff or pre precipitously get out of there? And I've heard Gordon address himself to this bloodbath issue, and uh, I think his answer would be uh, meaningful. 
Well, I think uh, since since so much has been made of the bloodbath question uh, by the president, it's worth thinking about a little bit now. Uh, the the thesis uh, is, of course, that large numbers of uh, South Vietnamese would die as the result of mass executions. Were the the uh, uh, National Liberation Front and the North Vietnamese uh, to emerge victorious on our departure? I think this flies. Uh, in the face of a good deal of evidence, uh, starting with the fact, for example, that contrary to the President's statement, there was no bloodbath uh, when the Viet Minh took over uh, from the French in the north. Now, two years following that, uh, there was a peasant revolt which was put down with a good deal of, uh, of killing. Uh, that's true, but this was nothing like a, a mass execution of Catholics, uh, the specter of which the President has raised. Uh, and in fact, there are still 800,000 practicing Catholics uh, in North Vietnam. Secondly, uh, I think, uh, and, and perhaps uh, most persuasively, uh, is the issue of uh, um, what uh, uh, is the is the general issue of of raising uh, the specter of some hypothetical deaths as a justification uh, for continuing with uh, an evident uh, bloodbath, which is uh, now occurring, uh, in, in in which. Uh, some uh, perhaps uh, two to three thousand uh, Vietnamese, North and South, military and civilian, are dying each week, uh, most of them uh, at our hands, and how we can uh, justify the continuation of that week after week after week in order to uh, prevent some uh, hypothetical uh, set of deaths in the future uh, is, is, uh, seems to me uh, quite illogical. Another very important point is to consider what if this, uh, the fiction known as Vietnamization were not a fiction and it were to succeed what kind of bloodbath would take place there against those that supported the NLF and uh, the North Vietnamese? There'd be, there would be, in that case, if Vietnamization weren't the fiction that it is and it succeeded, there would be a bloodbath in that case. But uh, Gordon mentioned the Catholic thing. We, many Americans uh, don't know it. I didn't know it. I found it out recently and was shocked. Uh, we've used this protect the Catholics pretext many times in the past. U.S. Marines first landed in Da Nang not in 1965, but in 1845. And they landed there under the command of an admiral named Mad Jack Percival. And they landed uh, to save a, a French bishop, uh, Dominic Lefebvre. And the Vietnamese were, were tired of being westernized, and they wanted to have, have a chance to develop their own culture. And here the French missionaries, with their zeal, were interfering. So the history of uh, American intervention with landing Marines goes way, way back. Destruction of people, destruction of a culture as well, and the land, of course. But something comes up, the question of responsibility. Gordon Livingston spoke of our whole society being Vietnamese veterans, and both Rob and uh, Bob spoke of the, the idea of Lieutenant Kelly being the guilty one, or Captain Medina being the guilty one. So we have to come back to who gave orders to begin with. And then we have to come back to your own training, don't you? I could ask that, you know. What are you told in West Point and Annapolis? Well, you know, West Point and Annapolis, I don't think, prepare an individual for combat. Uh, and I don't think their purpose is to prepare the individual directly for combat. After Bob gets out of West Point, I guess you're an infantry officer, right, Bob? Right. He went to infantry basic school, uh, which I guess was at Fort Benning for you, or was it at Fort Bragg? It's at Fort Benning. And uh, so he goes through a a uh, intensive training period after he gets out which is supposed to prepare him for combat and everything that surrounds combat. In my case in the Marines I get out of Annapolis and I went to Quantico uh, Marine Base which all the major schools for the Marines are located and I went through a thing called Officers Basic School which is supposed to t teach every individual Marine regardless of what his job is to be exactly what the Marine infantry man is supposed to do on the ground, the Marine's primary purpose in being. And uh, the, the brunt of the training was uh, how to fight Korea, how to fight a conventional war, uh, how to lay down rows of withering machine gun fire, how to keep from getting caught with your pants down uh, when you're being attacked by hordes of people, how to use cor uh, supporting arms, how to call in fire. And I think um, 90, uh, close to 90% of the primary training time was all geared to that and all logistics support, service support of that. Only 10% of it got into uh, any type of uh, real counterinsurgency training, which by real counterinsurgency training, I mean the, the political, social, economic uh, type of, of aspects involved in a counterinsurgency. The very little time was spent that way. Very little time was spent uh, in social aspects of what happens within an infantry company. 
In other words, uh, you, you've got 30% uh, of your company is black. Uh, what kind of problems can you expect? When I went through this training, nothing. You know, you got nothing of this. You were, th you were dumped out into the mythical Fleet Marine Force, which is an expression that was used. And all of a sudden, the reality, cold reality, slapped you in the face like a real wet towel. I mean, it was something that you, most people weren't equipped to handle because they came from you know, direct technical backgrounds in college. They go through a professional training, which doesn't touch on the human aspects of war or the human aspects of uh, being a military officer. And then you're thrown out into the middle of this. And I would only say that 10% of the officers are really equipped to handle that, and at the most 10%. And even then, after experience with it for a number of years, uh, that doesn't grow very much. It might grow to maybe 25% of the uh, officers after six years of service might have some feeling for the enlisted man and understand how to deal with him, uh, how to deal uh, within uh, the f command framework and the fact that he's dealing with an American citizen, not, uh, not a piece of cattle. Uh, th they so just don't give you this kind of a training. So then it, then it has to follow just in what Rob just said, that if the Vietnamese is considered a gook, and a slope and a statistic. The soldier himself does too, eventually. Yes. The only soldier whom the officer is in command of, he too, then all human life becomes demeaned and debased. Yeah, I, I think that's quite true. There are many uh, fellows that went through basic training that have expressed to me that uh, they were simply taught uh, <laughs> that the only good gook's a dead gook, you know, a variation on the only uh, good Indian's a dead Indian and the other. But this leads to another myth, which is related to the bloodbath myth. It relates directly to it about valuing human life. Uh, I've met a number of people that when, when they're pushed into a corner, they say, well, Asians don't value human life anyhow like we do. And this kind of allegation is best answered by a series of questions. And number one, uh, what happened to the soul of America, the American Indian? What did we do to the American Indian? Who uh, brutalized and enslaved the black race, Western man or Eastern man? Uh, were Adolf Hitler's eyes uh, slanted around? Uh, who dropped the atomic bombs on whom? And this is a very important point. And this myth is a very excellent defense mechanism for people, especially involved in Vietnam, because it's so much easier to kill people when you think they didn't value their life anyhow. It's, it's a tremendous rationalization and defense mechanism. A lot of things are happening in Vietnam uh, along these lines, especially in the terms of the, the fact that uh, I think many officers and many many units, many men, as a result, are led to unnecessary killing, not along the my lai uh, level, but just in daily uh, daily occurrence. Uh, if you can avoid taking a prisoner, you avoid taking a prisoner. Uh, uh, thinking along this lines, I've seen body the body count could fit in there as part of that. The fact that we're requiring a body count to show it. Uh, actually, s some commanders would prefer having prisoners, but there's so much involved in getting a prisoner. You've got to safeguard him, you've got to feed him, you've got to treat him according to the Geneva Conventions while we have him. Then what the Vietnamese do with him, that's their business. I mean, uh, you know, th the thing is that b when you pick up prisoners, you incur a lot of responsibility, and a lot of these troops don't want that responsibility. It's not just the body count thing. There's a the fact that uh, they don't want the responsibility of being responsible for another man, another individual. When you've got a prisoner, you're supposed to protect him, uh, all kinds of things like this, and no one will face up to that. They really won't. Well, Robert, there's an interesting thing on that. I, again, my experiences were in the Army. Never once did I hear someone ask, how many prisoners did you get? What was your prisoner count? It was always, you know, body count? body count, how many dead gooks, how many, how many weapons did you get? right, kill ratio. Uh, in the My Lai Massacre, there's a key example of this body count thing. Uh, there were only three weapons captured, and the, the head of the task force at My Lai reported 124 dead. And General Westmoreland uh, actually got that report and saw three weapons, and it doesn't take a military man to see when you kill 124 and capture three weapons that something's awry. He sent a congratulatory note to the commander of Task Force Barker for the My Lai Massacre. Something then, Gordon Livingston. Something has to happen to us then. I think that's right, and I think that that what it what it epitomizes, and what we're talking about in many ways, is not is that the Vietnam War has is not uh, the democracy uh, communist uh, confrontation which uh, 
uh, many in the administration would like us to believe. It's essentially a confrontation between a, a technological society uh, attempting to impose its will on an underdeveloped, uh, underdeveloped nation and, and uh, presupposing the right uh, to choose its uh, political, to determine that nation's uh, political system while measuring our success uh, by counting their bodies. And I think it, it terribly important that, uh, that what's exemplified by, by uh, the, uh, the kind of technological effort we've made over there is, is a whole societal approach. That is, th this society, of course, is preoccupied with statistics. Uh, everything, uh, uh, the in indices of success in this st society are statistical, whether it's your salary or whether it's, uh, it's the number of cars produced or whatever. So it seems quite natural that we should uh, uh, resort to uh, keeping charts and so on on how we're doing at Vietnam when we really can't measure uh, the uh, the important the political uh, effects of our presence there uh, in any quantitative matter, and I think that what is happening now is that the president is attempting to turn this war into what might be, uh, from what might be called a war of uh, of uh, of labor, that is uh, employment of troops, into a war of capital, that is delivery of um, uh, uh, delivery of weapon systems, that is the B-52 strikes are going on at a higher rate than ever, for example, uh, and uh, we have uh, every conceivable technological advance over there, radar, we have uh, people sniffers uh, in, uh, in helicopter, people sniffers, uh, very interesting uh, gadgets. They hang from uh, helicopters uh, that are sensitive to the, the uh, smell of urine. Uh, and uh, and uh, it's interesting also that uh, in our area, the, the, uh, the method the Viet Cong uh, uh, evolved to uh, circumvent this, they hung buckets of urine in the trees, which uh, forthwith became uh, artillery targets. Uh, but and and this uh, this sort of endless guns that fire five thousand rounds a minute uh, it's an endless effort to find a technological solution to a human problem and and I don't think you don't have to go to Vietnam to see that this is the this is one of the fundamental ills of the society and unless we turn away from this kind of approach uh, uh, to life uh, then I, I think the society uh, is is in for some very bad times indeed. Where does this leave us, uh, Rob? Rob Black. Uh, as far as where it leads us, let's, you know, the, it's funny how the Americans will use statistics to do what they want to do with the statistics. Uh, if you throw out statistics, you can always throw out the fact that uh, uh, recent a recent year that we spent $5,000 per Viet Cong estimated to be in South Vietnam just to shoot at him. We spent $5,000. $5,000 to kill a Viet Cong. Well, it, no, that just, that's just, just to shoot, shoot at him. At him. You don't shoot at him. Hundreds of thousands. You, uh, you know, that's only for the chance to shoot at him. It doesn't give you a chance of capturing him or anything. And yet, at home, I mean, it's come, it all comes out of a federal budget that I'm speaking of. And yet, we're only going to pay $44 per person for every young person going through school between the first and the twelfth grades. Now, uh, statistics right there that Americans understand point to just what we value. We value, that says to me, we value killing people. We don't value creating anything. There are several more comments made by uh, the colleagues of Rob Rich, who spoke there, his two colleagues being Dr. Gordon Livingston and Bob Johnson, two West Point and one Annapolis graduate, discussing their thoughts on Vietnam and, well, primarily on us. Uh, tomorrow, the conversation continues in a wholly different vein. Uh, uh, their own lives, their beginnings, and their schooling, how they got this way. After we hear from Marty Robinson, we'll speak of uh, tonight's program. Aid. Perfect weather virtually all year round. The beauty of the sea, the sky, the white sand beaches, and the tropical greenery. These can be summed up in just two words, Marco Island. The Deltona Corporation would like to send WFMT listeners free maps of Marco's waterways, the ports of call on Florida's Gulf Coast, maps of the great fishing areas, and a layout of available property. Marco Island is more than a sportsman's haven. It's one of Florida's most luxurious places to live. Marco is a resort community composed of homes and condominium apartments, a country club, and a yacht club. It's an island you can fly to, sail to, or drive to. For free maps of Marco Island and its lush surroundings, request Marco Island maps by card or letter from WFMT, 500 North Michigan, Chicago. 
or call Mackle Brothers offices in Park Ridge during business hours. The number is 692-6177. Studs? There are still two more performances of the opera Billy Budd at the Lyric, Benjamin Britten's Billy Budd, adapted from Melville's novel. And so the participants tonight, uh, the conversation took place last week, so there'll be a discussion of the opening night of the opera. Will be the principal, Sir Grant Evans, who is co-director, playing the role of Claggart, uh, Richard Lewis, playing the role of Captain Veer, Andy Anderson, the co-director, and Bruce Yarnell, playing one of the officers of the ship, tonight at 8. Uh, tomorrow, as I said, will be the thoughts of the three four officers in Vietnam, beginnings and sort of story of their schoolhood and family life.